there's a tiny mathematician in the back of my head that is screaming at this point while the psychologist standing just in front of him is going this is perfectly reasonable to me it's absolutely fine Good afternoon, I'm Andy. And, and good afternoon, I'm Rod. And I thought this week we could talk about um, qualitative and quantitative methods. Taking a break from assessment, eh? And, and, and talking about, uh, uh, well, data collection and data analysis. Yeah, I, I thought that'd make a nice change. Um, yeah. I, we, we probably ought to define our terms, first of all, really, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that, that's, that's important because... I, I would say, although there's a lot of overlap, you and I represent qualitative and quantitative respectively, roughly uh, speaking. I, I, I suspect we probably do. I suspect um, we probably do. So, define qualitative data for us, Andy. Oh, the only one you need. Qualitative um, is very much about interacting with a person. It's about collecting richness of data through relatively unscripted interactions um it can take a number of different forms it it can be visual it can be um transcribed and recorded interviews um it tends to be considered a little bit woolly by the hard science community you oh, can't see rod nodding away at this no point. i am i am nodding away and nodding sagely and saying yes mm, woolly data yes Whereas quantitative is, as the name suggests, all about quantities. It's all about numbers. If you can count something, if you can turn it into a number, it is quantitative data. And as Andy says, this is what hard science likes. So if we're talking about um, COVID cases, for example, is a really good, really, really up-to-date example. Whenever the government statistics presents, this is the number of people with COVID, this is the number of people in hospital, that is quantitative data because we are talking about numbers. Quantitative data is great in that it gives you a, um, you can use it to give you a snapshot of what's happening. You can use it to give you um, a picture of what is happening over time. And by and large, although, just by me saying to the, saying this, I'm sure a statistician somewhere is crying. It is analysed in broadly the same way. If I had the same set of data as you and I was trying to answer the same question, there are a set number of methods I could use to analyse that question. So it's much more, I don't want to say the word rigorous, because, because I would argue that both sets of data can be rigorous. It's much more rigid, I think is a better word. Yeah, the, the idea, I, I would say the... 
the watchword is that it's repeatable. Yes. But were you to repeat the experiment, you would get the same results. Um, and and that is a something that's thrown back against qualitative that you won't get the same results, but you will because there is rigor within qualitative um, methodology, and they're very strict methodological methodological guidelines to actually follow. Um, and you can actually reduce qualitative data to quantitative data, or you can use qualitative research methods to create quantitative data, let's mm. say. Um, so were you to conduct a, an interview um, research methodology or use an interview research methodology, you can code that to give you data points. Um, you could look at how many times a respondent mentioned a particular theme, and that will give you a number. It will give you a, a countable, measurable data point. Um, and I, I wanted to approach this with an argument that I, I, I think that quantitative data has had its day, or quantitative research methodology as a, a pure methodology has had its day. I can see Rod desperate to respond now. There's a tiny mathematician in the back of my head that is screaming at this point, while the psychologist standing just in front of him is going, seems perfectly reasonable to me. It's absolutely fine. Um, while I wouldn't agree wholeheartedly, I, I, would, I would say that qualitative data is becoming progressively more respected in a wider variety of disciplines than, than perhaps it has been. And I think to a certain extent that that goes right to the number of my argument in that quantitative methodology is colonial or colonialist. Um, it takes the separatist viewpoint of the researcher exists without context, without mm. um, reference to what they are researching. They, they take an unbiased view. They, they have an ego centric positionality which which bears little relationship to the researched field and it it it, it doesn't acknowledge the person that is actually being researched with um, and i'm using researched with rather than researched on because that, that again is the, the colonialist um viewpoint of quantitative data it does research on or researches into it doesn't have any co-partnership the the research participants have no ownership whatsoever of any element of the approach is that fair i think it is i think i think it's a, andy and i had unusually hadn't discussed this topic beforehand um not in this in this in this style um so this is this is a, a new new thing for me to react to. Um, and I think that's a very novel way of, of describing it. And I think it's, I think it's hitting the nail on the head a little bit, that, that colonial aspect, that holier than thou scientist looking down and researching for want of a better term, rats in a maze. And mm. the researcher is saying, well, I am different from you. And implying perhaps that be, I am better than you because I am not, fettered by emotions and illogical behavior and all of this sort of stuff because i am quantitative i can count how many times 
you press a button to be rewarded with a piece of cheese, for example. Um, but it doesn't tell you anything about why the rat is pressing the button to get you the piece, get the piece of cheese. No. Um, and that goes back to what Andy mentioned right at the start in that qualitative data is much richer data than quantitative data. Emotions are a good example of this. I could take a room full of 100 people and I could add up how many of them feel happy. And let's say 75% feel happy. 75 people, fine. Yeah. That's my quantitative number. Qualitatively, the reasons why these guys feel happy are going to be different. And I would wager we would probably have more than one reason why they're all happy, up to a possible limit of 75 different reasons why everybody's feeling happy. And it tells us more about the people in our cohort. So, so do you think taking that that analogy, taking your 100 people in happiness, do you think that quantitative is overly reductionist? It oversimplifies things in an attempt to understand them? Yes. And it, and it, it oversimplifies and, and reduces them down in an attempt to make them as broad as possible, as applicable to as many different people as possible. So, so, so I'm measuring the happiness of 100 people because I want to know roughly what percentage of the population is happy at this particular point in time. And I'm going to take my sample of 100 and explode it up to the population of the country and say, this is, this is my number. So, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's reducing the number, it's reducing the, the data down to a bite-sized piece. And if you look up anything on data compression, the minute you compress data, you lose information. If I take yeah. a video and I compress it down, I will lose information. I will use I will lose quality, for example. And I, I, I was coming this at this very much as as we know, we, we both work in a, a healthcare context. Um that I, I'm thinking in terms of as healthcare professionals, how we approach our research tasks both the formalized ones as undergraduate and postgraduate and our data collection when we're actually with patients, with clients. Um, and the default institutional mindset is that it is quantitative. We are creating a set of bullet points. We are reducing data down mm. into a comparable set of variables to create a diagnosis. And that loses an awful lot. Um, and it, it, I'm going to say, I don't think we should be teaching it that way. Um, I, I think we, we should be looking at involving our participants. We should be taking a, a, a more sociological, qualitative approach. Um, even the way science is reported has that, that colonial sting to it. That it, it doesn't involve the participants. Um, it's reported in medical journals and medical journals are exclusive or they are excluding mm. they they're not freely accessible they're hidden behind paywalls that that authoritative voice it it masks the the colonial aspects it ma masks the ableism the sexism the the ageism that that exists and how often do we see our research participants our cohorts explained 
Um, I mean, we might get a gender breakdown, we might get an age breakdown. Woe betide any um, quantitative study that would actually start looking at socioeconomic factors um, or relationship factors. And even gender is reduced to, to a binary male-female. It, it doesn't acknowledge the, the spectrum of gender within that, which is obviously going to affect mm. things within that as well. Um, it goes back to that, that, that point about, about data loss, about losing information. The minute you reduce anything, let's stick with gender, down to a binary choice, you don't capture the people don't fall into either of those two camps no. people in the middle and the people on the outside or you either don't capture them or and i would argue this is perhaps worse you are forcing them to pick one of those two camps that perhaps doesn't represent them at all so you are collecting flawed data ultimately yeah because if, if i'm looking at the you know gender differences in in, in happiness, let's go back to happiness again. By forcing you to say you are male or female, then I'm ignoring the people that don't identify as either male or female, or people that were born male and identify as female that might not feel comfortable ticking either of those two boxes because there isn't a I identify as female box and vice versa for, for, for people that identify as male. It's compromising the data a little bit, and that is at best going to give you flawed data. At worst, that it's very extreme. It is, it is, it's unethical. Yeah, you 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 are <clears throat> forcing people to 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 do something that isn't their their choice. You you are not accept, ex, getting their full informed consent. No, and. I know something else I was thinking about is how cohorts are traditionally um, recruited. And there are a huge number of studies that have used undergraduate students as their main cohorts because they are easy to recruit from a university setting. Um, the university populations have traditionally been um, white and male and middle class, which again will skew results. And certainly if we're looking in terms of health issues, if we have a young male middle class cohort, we are missing the majority of the country. Mm. And and that's you know we're not saying that, that all research is flawed, and we're not saying there isn't there isn't good research going on. But we're no we or or the argument we're, we're we're discussing is that a purely quantitative approach is flawed and can lose you to miss out some of the, that data. Having said that, I feel that going entirely qualitatively does limit some of the generalizability, which I said earlier was a flaw, but can also be a strength as well. So unsurprisingly for anyone that knows me, I'm taking the middle ground and saying I would do a little bit of both. And I, I was just thinking um, this highlights the, the scientist-clinician roles which we adopt as well. Mm. Um, and again, thinking in terms of a medical consultation as a data-gathering exercise, which is where I was coming from, and, and perhaps it was a little bit unfair and deliberately provocative to start this chat the way I did. <laughs> um, I would have expected nothing less of you, Andy, than to be deliberately provocative. 
absolutely fine. But there's also in um, fact, I would say ninety eight percent of our conversations have you being deliberately provocative. <laughs> there you go. I'll take that. I'll take that with pride. <laughs> um, but there's also the power gradient, and and again, traditionally, there's been a researcher participant power gradient, um, which medically we we we're striving to get rid of. Um, but if we're we're teaching research techniques through that colonialist empirical lens, which we still are. Are we, are we making life difficult both for us and for our students? Are we sending them mixed messages of what you're actually doing during the consultation isn't pure science because it doesn't follow these rules. You've not reduced these variables. Um, the extreme of that being the signs you see in doctor's surgeries that say, we will deal with one problem on one appointment. Yeah. And I, I, I challenge any medical professional to point to me to, to one ailment. And I'm, I'm going to get letters from our, from our students <laughs> now, which is absolutely fine that exists entirely independently of any other ailment in, at all. Yeah. You you stub your toe, you start walking badly for a while, you put strain on your muscles, you start sitting badly. For yeah. You affect your well-being, you affect your mental yeah. health. You carry too much weight. We know it's got a raft of other, other comorbid issues associated with it. So taking that, that reductionist philosophy and going down to just this, there is there is one thing. The biomedical approach, effectively, is flawed. And we are we're seeing a lot less biomedical and a lot more biopsychosocial these days. And and, and also the, the public buy-in is getting a lot better. A lot of it is due to um, journals are now a lot more savvy about making their access available to other people. I, by other people, I mean people that don't subscribe to the journal. But even me saying to other people shows the sort of parochial attitude that, that still that still exists a little bit so there are there are lots of i cannot for the life of me remember open access that's the word i was desperately looking for there are lots of open access journals out there is is that symptomatic of the way we consume things online though the fact that music is consumed as a subscription service spotify is a way of consuming music now rather than going out and buying a record buying a cd which is the equivalent of buying a journal is it becoming more subscription and, and freebies to to lure you into to the the fuller prescription subscription i think it is in some for some for some journals certainly there are some you know we'll make x amount available and if you want the back catalog you've got to start paying for it but there are some that that are that have got open access in their name and then everything they print is com is completely op open access i think yeah. but but i think that the spotify analogy is is an interesting one because you know spotify music streaming has been around for a decade or more now and the science community that should be at the forefront of all of these things is just starting to pick it up Again, evidence more of that imperialist 
we're 100 years behind everybody else attitude and we know better. We're not going to bother with this music streaming. That's not a model that's going to work. That's never going to that's never going to work. We can go home and listen to our vinyl um, and things like that. And I reckon they're all jazz heads as well. Yeah, of, course they are. of course they're all jazz yeah. heads. And not sort of trad jazz and listenable jazz. We're talking noodling. Yeah. Interminable jazz. Or there is another phrase I generally use for that type of jazz. I'm not going to use that phrase because people are listening. Um, Check out Charlie Mingus if you're not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly like that. Um, and, and, and I think and throughout the conversation, I'm, I'm you know, picking apart the, the, the focus on data, the focus on numbers, the quantitative focus. It's got to be behind some of that because because you you science as a discipline and i'm not pointing any single scientist here at all i'm talking about science as a as a, as a homogenous white coated blob sees the general public as data points as labs mm. in a rat uh, labs in a rat <laughs> don't put labs in a rat okay you're not gonna fit the entire labrador into a rat um rats in a rats in a lab rats in a maze sort of thing and I, and I think having but, said and, and that just, I, think, I think we're also on the cusp of that becoming old hat and that that sort of view I think is slowly being eroded and for the better now which again comes back to the whole thrust of the argument of some people are hanging on to an outmoded system which has ramifications throughout life. Um, it, it, if we've come back to that, the, the system is slowly changing for the better. Um, from another access point of saying how, how much is Spotify influenced, it shows that it is a, a scientific mindset is changing away from the... Hmm. I mean, historically, it has been a useful mindset in terms of understanding basic principles. Oh yeah, and, and, and you can't disregard quantitative analysis out of hand, and you know you need, to, but you need to get the fundamentals right. It's like Andy and I always say: you have to know the rules before you break the rules. Yeah, and that's effectively what quantitative gives you the rules, and qualitative breaks the rules, or at least bends them until they snap. Um, so, so yeah, we, you you need that that and that quantitative, but we're we're are we entering the the period of a of a paradigm shift? And this this is a for those of you that aren't are familiar with it, this is something that Thomas Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher, came up with. In that, you know, we 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 muddle along in science and everything is fine because we have a basic set of principles we work to, and then something comes along that changes those principles that fundamentally changes the way we view science as a whole. And that is your paradigm shift. We change the paradigm, change the underlying yeah. underlying basis. Quantum physics is a really good example. The minute we started understanding the quantum world, it changed everything that we understand about science. And we're, we're, we are probably at that same sort of period here in that, that we're moving more towards a much more qualitative model. It lacks that flashpoint of quantum physics that, that that appeared in a relatively short space of time. I think I think the, the the switch is being more drawn out and a bit more prolonged. 
at this point. But I think we are moving towards a much more qualitative data analysis viewpoint. But it is a a a, a shift in in everyone, isn't it? it it's it's a movement rather than a flashpoint. Um, mm. That's where I'm struggling to find. It is a a realization that life is complex, life is messy, and perhaps we have reduced it down too much. Mm. Um, when you look through research journals and think there aren't any papers in there I would want to read, and there certainly aren't any that I could apply out in the real world. Um, first, first question you should ask yourself if you're ever going to do any research is what use will it be? Um, and are the whole journals where people have failed to ask that question? I think if we ask the, the people doing it, they would say, well, because it needs, there are questions that need to be answered. And that's yeah, I, I, I realised how, how much I was hoisted by my own petard. You were very much, because I'm sitting there thinking, I'm trying to find an area of research that I can do because I enjoy it. I don't really care if no one else likes it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we are moving more towards a model where we're saying, what is the, what is the use of this? And we're talking about community engagement and we're talking about um, knowledge transfer and we're talking about universities and, and, and other, you know, institutions that, that perform research interacting and engaging with members of the public that, that 20 years ago, even maybe even 10 years ago. Wouldn't wouldn't have had a clue what was going on. We're we're forced we're no. forcing professors out from their ivory towers, and some are going to lock the doors and refuse to come out. Some are going to do it grumbling all the way, and some are cheerfully running down the stairs, shouting in in glee because they want to go out and do this because it's a very rewarding point of view. Um. So so yeah, I I, I and I again, it's it's that culture shift. So maybe maybe it's not so much paradigm shift. Maybe it's more of a culture shift than a paradigm shift, yeah. perhaps. Um, and I've realised we've been talking about this for I don't know twenty minutes or so, and we're not actually really talking much about how you do qualitative or quantitative no. data analysis. No. <laughs> we've just become two old blokes talking about nothing. Really, yeah, we've barely defined what they are, let alone talk about how we do them. I was thinking at the end of this. My, my students are going to go, oh, this is brilliant. I know exactly the difference between qualitative and quantitative analysis. And now they're sitting there going, paradigm shift, labs put in rats, what's going on? Oh, we 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 can argue about Likert scales for at least a, an hour. Oh, hang on. Likert scale, the perfect marriage of quanti quantitative and qualitative. <laughs> oh, so how many data points do you have on your ideal Likert scale? Four. Don't give them the middle option. If you give them the middle option, they'll take it. But what about what about your net promoter score that has ten? That's Why fine. do they have ten? That's too they many. don't use ten. That's too many. What's no. the difference between six and a seven? Oh, well, they acknowledge that in that they they ignore the tens and only use the seven, eight, nines. Well, then why why what do you need? you don't need the ten then, do you? I might have got that wrong. They certainly use very broad brushstrokes within. That sounds, that sounds about right. It's like certain, I'm not going to mention the name, but there, there, there are certain evaluation questionnaires that will give you five points to rate from 
port to excellent. And if you or and, and the middle one's always neither good nor bad, and they'll ignore it. If you tick it, yeah, you ignore it, and your and your voice gets lost. Um, so yeah, there's there's and there's a huge amount of stuff we could talk about in terms of, of liquid scales and, and yeah, and questionnaire design anyway, ordering yeah. questions. It's, yeah, yeah there, there, there's lots of it, and and questionnaire design is the maybe not the foreground, but it's one of the the boundaries of the quantitative qualitative crossover. Mm. And it, it's also one of the forgotten skills. It, it's just sort mm. of, oh, well, I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to create data points. Yet how you ask the questions, the order you ask the questions, the value you give the yeah. questions, not value in terms of scoring value, but value as in value-laden questions, implied yeah. value to the person that's filling the form in. Yeah, the, the, and there's a lot of those. And, and again, it's, it's, a, it's another example of the difficulties of taking a, a, a quantitative is best approach. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's perhaps what you and I are railing against more than quantitative is, is unnecessary or is a, you know, well, you might be saying quantitative is unnecessary. <laughs> I am not saying quantitative is necessary because I want to carry on doing statistics. Um, but saying that quantitative data is the be all and end all is flawed, deeply flawed. I would go, yeah. I would go, so, go so fast to, to say. Um, and when it comes to, to doing any sort of, sort of research, because we're, we're talking to postgrads who are almost certainly be doing um, research, undergrads will come and do some research as well. Um, don't be afraid to go down the qualitative route. No. As well. If um, if it's being offered, then it will be being offered by someone that's passionate about it, probably, because if they weren't, they wouldn't bother doing it. And the benefit you get with that is that no one else will have a clue what it is you're doing. Um, and you can get away with some really fun stuff as well. Yeah, and you, you have co-responsibility for what you create. Mm. Um, you are very much a guiding hand rather than a creator. The, the, the data, the richness is created by the participant. You just facilitate that creation, which again, from a healthcare point of view, is what you are going to be doing with every consultation, every treatment that you become involved in. It is a, a co-process. We've, we've moved away from paternalistic medicine. And you get to do focus groups and have biscuits and coffee and things like that. So... Yeah, that's a good. Or wine, cheese, cheese and wine in the garden outside. Uh, I, I, I can feel the hard scientist moving across to the um, the qualitative side of the. You know the full well the hard scientist has been moving away from the qualitative side for years. <laughs> He's just clinging on with his fingernails at the back, or doing like I said earlier. What I tend to do is do what I normally do and stay somewhere in the middle and say I can see the back the benefits of both. So move nah. to you qualitative you just happen to enjoy statistics yes but if we only did qualitative data i'd have nothing to do statistics on yeah but then it would become a theoretical maths problem rather than a real world problem oh i can see the benefit there actually i was always better at the theoretical stuff than i was at the real world stuff minute you if, algebra fine you put letters in something i'm perfectly happy the minute you replace those with numbers i've got no clue what's going on oh i've got loads to think about from that yeah, I think that's a good place to end. I do. I think we, we can end up revisiting this, I think. I think we will. I, yeah. I, I, I think we will, we will come back to it. And at some, at some point, we'll come up with, with, a, with a, 
perhaps a more useful how, how to do qualitative versus quantitative. Maybe a we'll get definitive answer. Well, I'm not sure a definitive answer, but perhaps we'll we'll come up with something. Maybe we'll maybe well, we need to get how about a, st a, well. a statistically significant answer? That'll do. Ninety-five percent of it. It's just ninety-five percent statistically significant answer. Cronbach's alpha or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, if we talk about qualitative, it's going to be Cronbach, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And now that we've lost 98% of the audience, because I've ruined it with statistics. We'll say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, folks. It's been fun. I'll talk to yeah, you soon. It has been fun. Thanks for listening. <laughs>